Okay, we need uh, we need to start. Keith Turner, would you uh, would you pray for us, please, as we begin? Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for hearts that bow before us. We pray that we will be sanctified from any part. May we love him more, and want to serve him more, and unify us as a body. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are in chapter 28 of the Confession. In your handout is the outline which I will go through. Uh, on the back side is the historic text of the Westminster Confession and then the modern version for those of you who might read that more easily. Uh, baptism is a controversial matter. Uh, probably the number one question I get asked by people at this church is the question not of predestination, which you think most people would want to ask. It's baptism. And baptism, usually the questions revolve around the mode, that is how we baptize, and number two, the subjects, who we baptize. And so we will talk about the mode some today. Uh, next week we will talk about subjects in that we're going to talk specifically about infant baptism and sort of give a full-orbed view of why we practice that here. And so uh, if I skip some of what's in the confession, that's because I'm going to talk about it next week. And please listen good, <laughs> um, because this can become an emotional issue for people. And... Um, uh, people have staked out sort of territory uh, on the subject, and a lot of it has to do with your background. I think I told you that I never even saw an infant baptized until I was well into my 30s. And so the normal way of understanding baptism for me, having grown up in a Baptist church and a Baptist culture, with a Baptist understanding was immersion only of believers. Um, and it wasn't just adult, children, believers were also uh, baptized, uh, but they were uh, professions of faith. And so let's look at what, um, and this is not a simple subject, and that's why somebody passing by goes, well, Pastor, tell me about infant baptism while I'm standing at the back door telling people <laughs> bye. Um, there is so much behind why we do it, and there are certain presuppositions that we have going into it. And I don't want to get into that today as much as next week, but really we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? Um, what is the relationship, if there is any, between circumcision and baptism? And number two, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? Uh, number three, uh, do we look at baptism only through the lenses of the doctrine of salvation, or do we look at baptism uh, in a more full-orbed, broader view, through the lenses of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, eschatology, uh, the last things, uh, soteriology, which we do. And so you have to, it comes down to a matter of hermeneutics. Herman who? Hermeneutics. <laughs> Does anybody know what a hermeneutic is? Yeah, it's the science of interpretation. 
We're not the only ones who use that term, by the way. Uh, English majors use the term hermeneutics. Philosophers use the term hermeneutics. And it's basically the prescription for your glasses that you use when you read the text of Scripture. And so all of that is involved. And so to take just an issue of baptism and try to simplify it and say, here's what it is in one sentence cannot be done, which is why the confession takes all these paragraphs. So let's jump right into it. First, the baptism of the Christian church. In the last paragraph of the last lesson, we mentioned that the New Testament sacraments have their root in the Old Testament. Christian baptism finds its background in Old Testament water ordeals. For example, Peter mentions the flood as an example symbolizing salvation and judgment. And Paul uses the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, as a type of baptism. But it is uniquely a sacrament of the New Testament, and it was ordained, both ordered, and established by Jesus Christ. It is a core part of the commission given by our Lord to his church in Matthew 28, which is often called the Great Commission, or the Great Omission. But... New Testament baptism is the baptism of the church. By the way, if you're looking at my head and you're wondering, did I take a fall and skid on blacktop? No, I have pre-skin cancer. And so I'm putting this stuff to eat it up. And so that's why my head looks like it does. Because I know you got to be thinking about it. Because if you are up here, huh? <laughs> now you got to pay attention, huh? Yeah. Okay. Um, so baptism is a symbol given to the church, and it marks the solemn admission of the party baptized, either an individual Christian or a whole family, into what we call the visible church. We are baptized into one body of Christians, as Paul explained to the Corinthians. Water baptism marks Jews and Greeks, free and slave, members of one community united not by ethnicity or economic status, but by a spiritual thirst only satisfied by the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to defining an emblem for the entry into the church or a badge that marks you as one who belongs, we have no right to make up our own symbol or ceremony. God has given us and ordained baptism to be that mark. And so there's a five-fold spiritual significance to baptism. Baptism is a marker for entry into the church, but it's not just merely that. As the chapter on the sacraments in general would lead us to expect, baptism has a gracious significance. And the Westminster Assembly mentions five facets of that significance here. First, baptism points to and validates God's gospel. The first thing that baptism points to and validates is God's gospel. To the person being baptized and to all who witness the experience or the event or to all who even consider the symbol, baptism testifies to the truth of an enduring promise which God himself has made, which he continues to proclaim and which he continues to honor. It is the promise of redemption for all who trust in Christ alone for their righteousness. And as the previous chapter stated, the action or event of baptism does not contain power 
in and of itself. It is water. That's all it is. And water is applied to the person. And there's no magic here. Okay? But what makes it effective, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, with the interpretive words of institution, which explains what baptism means, and which is, sets it apart from being an unusual shower or bath, this, this sacrament is a powerful sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So never detach baptism from the concept or the biblical idea of the covenant of grace. Baptism preaches to the Christian in the same way that circumcision preached to the patriarchs. It is a sign and seal of righteousness that is ours by faith. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 4, but in fact, Romans should be read alongside Colossians because in the latter, Paul explains that baptism pictures salvation in a way similar to circumcision. Circumcision's cutting off of the flesh, symbolized by the removal of our sin by Christ, who himself was completely cut off in the flesh. He was crucified. And Paul says we benefit from this work of Christ because we are in union with him. We are connected to him. There's a vital union and connection with him. Baptism's washing with water symbolizes the removal of our sin by Christ, who was completely covered by our sin and then cleansed in his resurrection. He was buried and raised again to new life. And Paul says we benefit from the work of Christ because we are in union with him. If you take that little phrase, in Christ, or in him, it's all over the Bible, all over the New Testament, because that's the essence of life in Christ, is being united to him like a vine and a branch. This is an organic connection that is ours by regeneration and ours by grace as the Holy Spirit indwells us and unites us to Christ. So every sacrament, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, has a primary reference to that which is always true and a secondary reference to that which is often true. Let me talk about that. That is a reference to that which is and a reference to that which ought to be. Baptism is most basically and universally, just as circumcision was, about the works and righteousness of of another, not us, but another, and not about the righteousness we ourselves have. It is primarily about the person, promises, and actions of God, and not about us, not even about the righteousness which we have in Christ as Christians. The enduring importance of baptism rests in what it always says about God. Now, there is a way to look at baptism which is God-centered, And there's a way to look at baptism that is more man-centered. And the focus of how baptism is administered will tell you which one uh, is being used. So there's a man-centered focus and a God-centered focus. Of course, everyone, without question in the room, certainly wants to be God-centered about it. Nonetheless, baptism is, in the second place, a sign and seal not only of redemption promised, 
but of redemption accomplished and redemption applied. So redemption has been promised, it has been accomplished by Christ alone, and it is applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. And so the enduring importance of baptism rests upon what it says about God. Um, it signifies and seals engrafting into Christ. It is because baptism points to and validates a vital connection to the Savior. Uh, that in Romans 6, Paul employs a baptismal analogy, and in Galatians 3, he states that as many as you uh, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He uses the language putting on. It's like taking off dirty clothes and putting on the robe of Christ. Baptism symbolizes that. And so the Westminster Assembly aims to set forth the biblical teaching rather than to qualify these statements. The Assembly explains neither why some baptized people do not appear to be united to Christ, nor why some people are to be baptized before they are united to Christ. The scripture presents a strong connection between baptism and union with Christ, so that is what is presented here. So in the third and fourth place, I'm doing five things of significance, third and fourth place, scripture draws baptism into close proximity uh, to regeneration and the remission of sins. It points and testifies to these saving realities too. When Paul speaks of the washing of regeneration, he is referring more than likely to baptism. And if the baptism of John and his disciples can illustrate aspects of the baptism of Christ and his disciples, then there is also such a thing as a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Lastly, and the most familiar to evangelical Christians today, baptism is a sign and seal of a life given up to God through Jesus Christ. It points to and testifies to a dedication to God to walk in newness of life. Baptism preaches the gospel promised and accomplished, but because it also depicts the gospel applied, it includes a call to be who we are in Christ. And it calls us to surrender our lives to God. Um, after all, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, buried therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's no doubt that baptism is so rich in its significance and is such a clear pointer to Christ himself that our Lord appointed it to be continued in his church till the end of the world. And by his spirit and in our teaching and in our baptisms, he will always be with us until the end of the ages or age. Now, let's talk about water. Obviously, we use water when we baptize. But that hasn't always been true in church history. In church history, especially the medieval church, uh, they made it such an elaborate affair. And it slowly began to attribute too much power to the sacrament of baptism. And it sought to compete with elaborate 
rituals of rival religions, so the church felt obliged to improve on the simple baptism formula of the New Testament, Matthew 28, already in the early centuries of Christianity, consecrating oil had been added to the symbol of water for baptism. For Christians had forgotten that water alone can also symbolize the giving of the Holy Spirit. But by late medieval period, the baptismal formula included multiple exorcisms. I don't know if you've ever watched a baptism, maybe in a medieval movie, I know that you watch, no. But I, I, I'm sort of enamored with the medieval period, and so I've seen several of these baptisms and what they have you renounce, and exorcisms were often performed uh, to sort of jack the baptism up a little bit uh, to make it more like other entrance rites into other religions. Now, the reformers, of course, opposed this. And by the time the Westminster Assembly uh, theologians got together, it returned to the simple instruction of the New Testament. The outward element to be used in baptism is water and water alone. And... Uh, also, it is done, and don't forget this is an essential part of baptism, not only the use of water, but it's administered in the name of the triune God by a properly appointed minister. And so the sacrament includes not only the use of waters, waters applied to the person, but it involves the name. We are baptizing the person into the name of who? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptisms that are not Trinitarian are not valid. Uh, baptisms that use more than water are questionable. But that's the simple instruction. So the basic element of water is one point of continuity between the sacraments of John the Baptist and Jesus and their disciples. John the Baptist was sent to baptize with water and subsequent Christian baptisms never varied from this. What did change was that Jesus, rather than John, began to appoint servant, servants to baptize, that the baptismal message became that of Jesus' full-orb gospel and not merely John's prophetic warnings, and that Christians were to administer baptism in the name of the three persons of the Godhead rather than in the promise of a more powerful spirit to come. And so the conviction that baptism is to be administered in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by a minister of the gospel lawfully called rather than self-appointed is established in the Great Commission. It was, after all, a commission. Jesus' instructions to baptize were given to men whom he had called to the ministry. And what made his commission great was not so much the magnitude of the task, but the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who would carry the work forward. Given Jesus' command that baptism be administered in the name of the triune God, we should not consider baptism practiced today by Trinity-denying cults a true baptism any more than 17th century Christians consider baptism practiced by some of the groups we mentioned earlier who denied the Trinity as a true baptism. Uh, now, let's get into mode. And the mode is how do we administer baptism? Now let me tell you something up front. When I grew up in the Baptist church, and then I was ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor, 
the party line, and this isn't, it's not all Baptist, but this is the way, tradition I was brought up. I was taught that the word baptizo, or the word, it's a transliteration, baptism is really a Greek word. And so it's baptizo or bapto. I was told that that word can only mean one thing, and what was it? Immersion. That is not true. That is not true. And that bothered me greatly. Because I took four years of Greek. I took two in college and two in seminary. And I had to translate lots of passages throughout the Bible. And so there are places in the Bible where the word baptizo or bapto or other derivatives are used that refer to washing. That refer to sprinkling. That clearly refer to pouring. And so... We believe that the mode is not of the essence of baptism. One thing you need to know about Presbyterians is we accept immersion as a valid mode. Why? Because it uses water and because it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and hopefully it's lawfully administered by a minister of the gospel. Baptists, if they're faithful to the Baptist faith and message, they're sort of modern confession, would not accept any form of baptism that is not immersion as valid. And so with integrity, I don't know how they can do that. I just, I don't, I don't know how. I don't mind immersing someone because I think it's a valid form of baptism. And uh, I've done that. But what I'm arguing here is, is that to argue that that is always only what that word means is just not true at all, at all. So, a sacrament involves an element such as water, words of institution, I baptize you, and an action. Now, most Protestants agree that the use of baptism, water for baptism, and the need for words of institution, we're, we're in agreement on that, but they disagree about the mode of baptism. Now, by the way, let me relativize this just a little bit. Is baptism salvific? No, it's not. So is there room for different understandings of baptism? Yeah, there is. But it needs to be informed understanding of baptism. And so, should a person be dipped or immersed under the water, or should water be put on him either by pouring or sprinkling? Uh, Baptist story Bibles always picture John or Philip immersing new converts. Reformed story Bibles picture them scooping up water and pouring it or sprinkling it on their heads. I know that from reading my children's story Bible. <laughs> now, many Christians today believe that in Christian baptism, a person must be dipped or immersed into water. And the Westminster Assembly did not want to exclude this mode of baptism or to deny that those who have been immersed have a valid form of baptism. Nonetheless, the Assembly's summary of biblical teaching is clear, both when it says that the dipping of the person into water is not necessary, and when it states that baptism is rightly administered, by pouring or sprinkling water upon that person. And as it happens, the word baptism does not imply any one kind of mode. It simply means washing. And washing can be symbolic, with a little li liquid, or real, with a lot of liquid. 
There are in fact scriptural indications that baptismal washing often involved a little water, water rather than a lot. And the Westminster Assembly in the scriptural passages it cites presents four places where this appears to be the case. The baptismal washing, sometimes referred to water, poured on a part of the body or sprinkled on something and is uh, suggested in the first place by the everyday use of the term during New Testament era. Uh, the Gospel of Mark explains how Jews did not eat after being in the marketplace until they had baptized their hands. That's the word. In Mark chapter 7, as they also baptized cups, pots, copper uh, vessels, and dining couches. Now, I can see a merce in a cup, or a pot, or even a vessel, but not a dining couch. So maybe there was pouring involved, or dipping, or whatever. There is no body of evidence to suggest that the Jews immersed themselves before their meals, or immersed their furniture. They probably washed their hands and possessions with some water. And if you look at the washing of the hands, generally it was done by pouring uh, over the hands. It's kind of like taking a bath. Why would you want to sit in your own <laughs> in your own bath water? I've never understood that. I mean, I know it's relaxing and comfortable, and if you're the only one in there, that's fine. But uh, second, I probably need to edit that out. But uh, just thinking out loud. Second, there are times when too many people were baptized to permit immersion. For example, Acts 2.41 tells us that 3,000 people were baptized on one day in Jerusalem. It is hardly possible that in such an arid, dry climate like this, the Jews would allow Christians to use and pollute the amount of water necessary for 3,000 baptisms. Third, there were times when baptisms happened too quickly. It seems to have uh, happened too quickly, that is, to have involved immersion. The Philippian prison warden came to faith in the middle of the night and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And the la language of immediate baptism does not suggest that they went through the city and were baptized at the river or a pool. Paul probably reached for a jug or a bowl after explaining baptism and poured or sprinkled water on these converts. Fourth, baptismal washing also has an important Background in Old Testament washings. The New Testament calls these ceremonies where sacrificial blood was sprinkled baptisms. We see it in Hebrews 9.10. In that verse, the Bible speaks of various baptisms or washings, and then in subsequent verses lists some of the bloody baptisms of the Old Testament and tell us that they symbolize the forgiveness of sins. This not only... Uh, thus, not only does the Greek word for baptismal washings frequently not refer to immersion, but it usually refers in the Bible to something else, namely sprinkling or pouring. Now, I know there's one case where it is said in the Old Testament that some, something was baptized in the blood of a bird. A really poor person would bring what? A bird. How much blood is in a bird? Can you be immersed? Well, the word baptism is used with the sprinkling of the blood of a bird in the Old Testament. And so you just have to be careful saying that the word baptism always means, you have to allow for the fact 
that there are other meanings of the word. And that's just objective lexical knowledge is what that is. Now, what is most significant to note is that the actions of sprinkling and pouring repeatedly symbolize the divine work of salvation in a way that immersion simply does not. The coming of the Holy Spirit is symbolized by what? Anointing or being poured out. Forgiveness is symbolized by sprinkling, Hebrews 9. So too, sanctification for we, uh, uh, is sanctification, for we're told to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The only plausible picture of immersion in baptism is that of Romans 6 or Colossians 2. But arguably... It is plausible to us because we all think when you bury somebody, where do we put them? Underground. Six feet under, right? Is that how they buried people in the first century? No. Not usually. I'm not saying not ever. Where was Jesus buried? What was rolled over the... So, he was not underground, right? That's something to think about. Um, in hard Palestinian soil, burials were often affected horizontally, that is, behind a rock in a cave. It is for this reason that we find the weight of biblical testimony tilting us consistently toward the Westminster's assembly conclusion, which is dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So, I could go into great detail over this and provide you a lot more than I'm telling you now as far as the mode goes. So let's just look at it this way. As a Presbyterian who subscribes to the standards, we accept immersion as a valid form of baptism, but we also accept pouring and sprinkling as uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The intended form of baptism. Uh, so, uh, I'm familiar with people who have uh, moved on, let's say, uh, out of the city that were coming to this church who were Presbyterians. And they went, because there was no PCA church where they went, they ended up in an evangelical or at least a Baptist church, and they have either called, written me, texted me, emailed me, and said, why do they want to baptize me? <laughs> well, I just say because they believe you have not been validly, scripturally baptized. And so this person is excluded because of mode. And uh, that's just a difference that happens in the church. And mature people can cope with it and handle it, and other people might not. So <laughs> let's talk about baptizing believers because we've got to get on our horse here. Uh, no Christian disputes the fact that uh, adult believers uh, are to be baptized if they have not already been baptized as infants. But they do dispute... Uh, Baptism for children, or the children of believers. 
uh, all agree that baptism is for those who believe. We do not all agree that baptism is also for believers' children. In the book of Acts, we see that people received the word of God when they believed the preaching about the kingdom of God, when their hearts were opened to listen to what God was saying to them, then those unbaptized people were baptized, and that's all over the book of Acts. And so the emphasis in all of those passages is faith before baptism. And so the Westminster Assembly refers here to believing and later simply refers to that as believers. Explicit in the New Testament episodes is a requirement of faith in Jesus Christ as one Savior. It is also true that implicit in each of these episodes is a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so it's not hard to imagine a New Testament baptism taking place where a new convert was willing to trust Jesus as the Christ, but not submit to him as king. And yet it is worth noting that these passages and others which could be cited can only confirm by biblical example a doctrine of adult baptism. There are no explicit examples of children being baptized in the New Testament. All identified persons baptized in the New Testament are adults, perhaps none of them under the age of 30. We are not told that the Philippian jailer had a college-aged daughter who was baptized with him, or that Lydia had twin 10-year-olds who came to faith. The fact is that Philip did not meet a couple of teenage joggers along the road. He met a diplomat in a chariot. So we see adults coming to faith and being baptized. We see adults asking about baptism and being told about Jesus Christ, and that is all. If we were to build our theology on explicit proof texts, we must stop with adult believers' baptism. It takes additional work to arrive at a principle of all believers' baptism. Thankfully, no one, thankfully, no one does stop with adult baptisms. First, Christians assume that in five mass baptisms and four household baptisms mentioned in the New Testament, younger people came to faith and were baptized. Second, and more significantly, Christians make a theological judgment. We make a theological inference that goes beyond the raw data of the New Testament in order to arrive at the very sensible conclusion that all unbaptized believers ought to be baptized no matter what the age. The practice of baptizing children at any age is a doctrinal deduction from scriptural examples rather than explicit teaching of scripture. So I'm going to skip uh, down to, because I'm going to talk about infant baptism next week, I'm down to neglecting baptism. Does that look like where we are? Okay. The reason for despising baptism are almost as varied as the person who neglects the ordinance. In the medieval period, and even more in the 16th century, there were those who thought it was more spiritual to abandon baptism than to partake of it. Today, carelessness about baptism often accompanies negligence about church membership. But whatever the reason, it is a great sin to neglect baptism for the neglect of the sign is perilously close to the neglect of the reality which it represents. And so baptism is not to be made light of. Um, it is obedience probably to the first command Jesus has ever given you. Right? So it's very important. An inseparable annex will come up next week. So you, 
draw a line through that or whatever you do to move on. Now, baptismal regenerations. Adults should not seek baptism until they have sufficient evidence that they're born again. As argued earlier, this is not necessary for children. Indeed, it is possible that the Holy Spirit could make elect infants new creatures even as the sign of new life is being applied to them. We have a couple of cases in Scripture where people were regenerate from the womb. Uh, at least one member of the assembly thought this would be the norm. However, it remains to be said in this corrective paragraph that not all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. And the assembly recalls the sad story of Simon Magus to demonstrate the truth of this assertion. Simon believed the gospel. He was baptized before it became obvious that he had not truly believed the gospel at all but simply wanted the power of the apostles for himself. Peter judged Simon was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, and that is hardly a description of a regenerate person. So when is baptism useful? In maintaining that those who are baptized are always not always regenerated, the Westminster Assembly also held that the effectiveness of baptism is not tied to the moment of time wherein it is administered. Christians have often wanted more consistency and predictability in God's gracious blessing of the sacrament than he is willing to give us. In a sense, we have tried to tame the Spirit to harness his work to baptism or to the Lord's Supper, but the Spirit is sovereign. He will not permit this. One of the lessons that Nicodemus took home with him from his evening encounter with Jesus was the Holy Spirit cannot be scheduled. We need to be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of the God. Nonetheless, the movement of the Spirit is as free as the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He will not tether his work to the sacraments. Yet notwithstanding all these qualifiers, the sacrament of baptism does have a purpose. Uh, it is a means of exhibiting or conferring the grace promised. As indicated previously, the sacrament needs to be properly used. It's not a talisman or a good luck charm. It is to be accompanied by explanatory words of institution. Nonetheless, when a right use of baptism is made, God's promised grace is not only offered, but actually exhibited or presented and conferred by the Holy Spirit. It is conferred to adults, people of age, or infants. It is a means of grace. It is conferred to all people to whom grace belongs according to the counsel of God's own will. And it's conferred in this appointed time. Obviously, the Westminster divines are shying away from any uh, suggestion that baptism works invariably and automatically. It is a tool of the Holy Spirit, and it works when He chooses and not when we choose. But the assembly is calling Christians to recognize that baptism really is a tool and the Holy Spirit often chooses to use it. So much so that, the, uh, that to the Galatians, Paul could say, as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, or Paul in Titus could link the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, or the Ephesians could say that Christ sanctified his church, having cleansed her not only with the word, but also by the washing of water. To a crowd from many countries, Peter could say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
And to the church of all ages, Luke could say that those who received Peter's preaching were baptized. And it was upon that reception and baptism that the apostles were willing to conclude that souls were added to the church that day. So the Holy Spirit can use the visible word to preach to us just as he can use the audible word, and he has often done so. And so finally, you're only supposed to be baptized once. I have been baptized twice, and I'm still alive. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're supposed to, but that's given the fact that we understand what baptism is about. It remains to be said that the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered to any person. Just as the renewal of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, so is the washing of regeneration that signifies the renewal. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see people being re-baptized except for the people Paul found in Ephesus who only knew of the baptism of John the Baptist. It is puzzling to consider what baptism should mean to us when it is not used or intended rightly, such as the Roman Catholic Church, and yet baptized later becomes a believer. Now let me talk about, I mentioned last week again, is a Roman Catholic baptism valid? If it is done in the name, using water, uh, then it is, at least in my understanding, a valid form of baptism. Some would argue that the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate church. Therefore, any baptism of them by them is not valid. I would not go that far. I would say that a Roman Catholic baptism is valid. Uh, that's just a judgment call that every session makes. Admittedly, it's puzzling to consider what it means. And yet, the person baptized later becomes a believer. It is also troubling to think that people falsely confess faith and are baptized as hypocrites, perhaps only coming later to true faith. Such cases remind us that the church is to labor to avoid both improper baptism and the baptism of improper subjects. Nonetheless, you know, I think in the uh, early first century that catechism or catechizing of baptismal candidates lasted two years. And you think me making you come to a membership class for three hours is torture. <laughs> no, it's not. If we understand that, we will see the Holy Spirit can use baptism, even deficient baptisms, as he wills. It's really the only kind of people he's got to work with who are deficient. God's grace has a priority over the intention and manner of administration and over the truth or falsity of a profession. God's grace is displayed in baptism and needs to dis be displayed only once. So that's what I have for you on baptism at that point, and it's time for me to go. But next week, we will look at the subjects of baptism, and our particular focus will be infant baptism. Thank you.